You're tuned in to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where compassion inspires action. Together, we're building a world centered in understanding, empathy, and courageous action. Now, let's welcome a man committed to fostering compassion in every corner of our city, the voice of compassion, your host, Will Rucker. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I want to welcome you to yet another special episode. You are going to be entertained. You are going to be inspired. Our special guest is none other than my friend, Timara Walker. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So it's been a while since you and I have had a chance to catch up. So I'm really excited to hear what you've been up to and what's happening next. But first, I want to set kind of a baseline for the podcast. As you know, this is all about inspiring hope and giving people practical ways to be compassionate. And with your life experience, I feel like it just comes natural to you. But how do you define compassion? I define compassion like I start with, please be aware. And like, and when I say be aware, it's not just be aware of what's around you, what you see, but really be aware of the things you don't know. Like it's the, the, the action of being kind to people that you are familiar with, even though it's nice that you're being kind, that's easy because you, you know, those people, but when we see people, and this is something that, um, I have really, I don't want to say I've done, I've been more on the receiving side when you don't know someone, but you see their, their social media, you see what they're doing online or they're performing. It's human nature, unfortunately, to just assume that what you see on that stage or what you see on social media is like real life. And I ain't saying that everybody lying. They not. It's just that there's more to life than what you put on Facebook. So please be aware of the things that you do not know and realize that what you consider comfortable, what you consider to be um, you know, a regular standard, we don't all share that. So sometimes it takes you have to take a step back and just be aware, like, I, I know what I expect. I know what I do, but you don't know what other people are doing. That to me is really the ideal definition of compassion because especially with what I do, almost everything I see is created. So, you know, I, I can't look at people and be like, oh yeah, she's fine because she's not. We just have to be aware. That is so powerful and so important. And I'm going to go through so folks know who you are as if anyone in the world doesn't, right? But give a little bit of history and then I want you to to expand on and fill in any gaps. So born and raised in Toledo, Ohio. And born in Boston, raised in Toledo. Oh, wait a minute. Boston who? Boston, Massachusetts. And that's important because I was born in Boston because my father was getting ready to graduate from Harvard. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, born in Boston, raised in yeah. Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> and pastor's kid. And I mean, just mom of two. And took a car trip across the country to Las Vegas and became a icon on the strip with the MJ1 show with, I mean, you name it, right? Elvis, Mm -hmm. several recordings, and you've got your own gospel choir. And what else am I missing? Because you're you're doing a lot. Shaka Khan, um, Gladys Mm -hmm. Knight. uh, who, Who else? 
So that's pretty much like the skeleton. And and that's, um, you know, there was a lot of in between. But the, the car trip, that's important because I did drive from, De- oh, don't let me take that credit. My now husband drove from Detroit to Vegas. Um, my husband is six foot seven. We was driving a Honda Civic. It was like riding with Optimus Prime. He had to unfold every time we got out of the car. So that's important. Uh, and then I came here. And to be really honest, like the people who knew me from the Midwest definitely thought I came here and just jumped into, okay, I'm a performer. But that was 80 pounds ago. So to myself, I look like, you know, when you want some Grand's biscuits and you have to unwrap the paper and then you slam it on the counter. I look like the thing after you hit it on the counter. I was built like that. Just, yeah. They're not looking for that on stages in Las Vegas. So I had to go through a whole lot to just kind of get myself to this point um, to make myself confident. Nobody ever said it to me because the voice was always going to get people excited. But I was like, no, we're not going to look like a busted can of Pillsbury biscuits and get on this major stage in Vegas. We gonna we gonna change some things. So I did that. Uh, I traveled with Gladys Knight for a year and a half. Um, then I stopped. Who's gonna leave that there? And then I was in Vegas and um, did the MJ One show. Did a couple of Cirque shows, which took me around the world. Uh, went to China, hated it. Went to South Korea, loved it. Went to New Zealand, think I want to move there because it's just better than America. Um, and then after working here some more, then I ended up with the gig singing with Shaka, um, which of course is like life changing because she's a whole legend. Like she's Shaka icon. That's really how that works. Like she really is. Learned a whole lot. Um, my children are both musicians. My children are both singers. And then my choir. Um, so yeah, we'll call them gospel because most of the time when we get booked, they want to have us in robes, but we're in robes singing Beyonce. So we're a little different. Um, you know, we got our own niche. Like there's definitely choirs all over the place, but I love arranging and harmonies and stuff. So we're known in Hollywood. Catch that. We're known in Hollywood for being an acapella choir that does unique acapella arrangements of any song you can think of. So that's basically what I'm doing. We're really getting ready to go on a big fall run. So I'm doing a lot of um, staging and planning and arranging and rehearsing and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I know I'm forgetting something, but that's pretty much it. So with all of that, I wanted to make sure we hit the highlights because I want to dive into your story and why you took that road trip across the country. And then even some of the challenges once you got here as well. So after this break, we'll be back with more from Tamara Walker and getting into this diva's story. Yes. Treat others how you'd you'd like to be treated. treated. And that's the golden rule. Camp Anytown has taught me that knowledge is power. And if I utilize my voice, I can make a difference in the world, no matter how big or small. I learned that as long as we stand together, we can accomplish so much more. What Camp Anytown has taught me is that I am not crazy to think I can change the world. I'm crazy if I think I can do it alone. Camp Anytown has taught me that just because I'm different does not mean I don't belong. I learned at Camp Anytown to be more compassionate because you never know what somebody else is going through. Camp Anytown is a no-cost youth leadership camp that trains high school students in diversity, community, and inclusivity. 
When you choose the Golden Rule license plate, you play a part in a local camp that helps shape a better tomorrow. Learn more at dmvnv.com. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker here with our very special guest, Timara Walker. We just talked about her amazing career with Shaka Khan and Gladys Knight, traveling the world with Cirque du Soleil and so many other things. But what you don't know behind her stories, what I really want you to hear today, that road trip from Detroit to Las Vegas wasn't a just because thing, although I do want to hear why Vegas. But it was because of some very, very challenging life circumstances. So, Timara, fill us in. What happened? So, um, I don't want to give a whole lot of time to someone that doesn't deserve it. But I will say, I know that this is still a common problem. It's actually a little worse after COVID. Domestic violence. That was really what sparked me um, to be open to the suggestion of leaving. I, I got married in uh, 2000. Who child? I can't even remember. 2002. And um, I'm going to be really honest. I knew that was a bad decision, like at the rehearsal dinner. Now, I knew that was a bad decision when I picked the colors. I did. But my father had passed away in 1999. And I just was feeling like I needed something. But that's where we have to be careful because um, before you start following what you need, make sure the word isn't something. Be specific about what you need. I made a bad decision and ended up with a bad person who um, not only physically uh, abused me, but the the point that the straw that broke my back was one day I was getting ready to go sing praise and worship at church and I went to put my contacts in because your girl can't see and I went to put my contacts in and started with my left eye and put the contact in and realized as soon as my left eye blinked over that contact that my ex-husband had put alcohol in my contacts case and so you know, our eyes are just like our throats and noses, very protective. When you do things that feel abusive, they close. My eye was stuck closed for hours. I still went to church and did praise and worship with all kind of stuff coming from my eye. Went to the hospital after praise and worship was done. Um, and they told me I had second degree burns on my eye. And um and, I, and they were like, you know, we, we may have to explore some surgeries. And I really had to be like, okay, so I don't want to sound cliche like the Black folks that be in testimony service. But see, I know a man that can handle this instead of me sitting here and losing all day and scaring my children and trying to do some surgery. So thank y'all. Let me get that uh, peroxide flush and I'm going to be out. And I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it work. Um, I'm not going to say that my vision isn't slightly worse in the left eye. It is. But I can see and I'm, I'm not in any way, you know, disabled or anything. But that was the breaking point. I have been being abused for seven years and um, stuck around because oh, my kids need their daddy. He wasn't no daddy. Oh, I don't have anywhere else to go. I had everywhere else to go. I just don't want to be alone. You are alone, bro. He burnt your eye. So I finally was just like, I, I have to go. And then my now husband, I've actually known since I was 11 years old. And we went to uh, brother and sister single sex high schools. But he was too scared to approach me when he was 15. When he sees this, he is so going to act like that's not true, but it is. Um, so he didn't say anything to me until we were both 32 and he found me on Facebook and we talked for mm, four months and he said, I hate the snow. I've loved you since we were 15 and I want to leave. You want to live in Vegas? 
And I said, yeah. And 23 days later, we left. I left my children in Detroit with my mom. We left. We came here. We stayed in one of the extended stay suites. Never again. Uh, but we stayed there. And two weeks later, we had a house. And a month later, my kids came. And uh, I haven't looked back. Wow. So Vegas was his idea. Yes, because he um, in high school, he was like a superstar basketball player. See, the issue was that I was a singer and John was a very well-known basketball player and a little bit of a gigolo. So I wasn't paying him no attention at all. And he never said anything to me. Um, but as a basketball player, it took him all over the place. He had been here four or five times in high school tournaments and stuff. I had never been. My first time ever seeing Vegas was the day all my stuff was in the trunk and we rode up the highway. But he loves it here. Wow. I, and I didn't know that either. So Vegas was my dream just coming here. Oh, really? Yeah. Since since 1990. I won't tell my oh. age. I wasn't born in 90 yet. But since 1990, <laughs> I wanted to live in Las Vegas. So that's so hmm. fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I just didn't. I didn't want to be in the snow. And it seemed like I couldn't get I left that man, but I couldn't leave the stigma that was around it. He, he has a very big family where we're from and they were everywhere. And I was in the church circuit. I was really just doing gospel music then. And his family was also in the church and it was just too much. And I was going to hurt someone in somebody's sanctuary. So it was time to go. Yeah. So with that very difficult situation you still persevered what would you say was the thing that kept you i know your faith of course during those seven years but in addition to that what would you point to as perhaps the greatest act of compassion you received or the thing that caused you to just keep going so i'm gonna have to give that award to my children um brooklyn is now 21 but brooklyn been an old soul since she got here and she's nobody's dummy she definitely saw some of the abuse that was happening. And I was trying to, I was basically mimicking the women that I saw on Lifetime. Like, oh, I've got to keep this away from my kids. They need to be normal, da, da, da. But she's not dumb and she saw it. And there were several nights that Brooklyn left her bedroom and came to me because not only was he abusing me, but he was also cheating on me. So I spent a lot of time alone. Um, well, kind of alone because then Brooklyn would come in the room and be like, you're okay. I just came here to live with you because you're the best mom ever. Those moments. Like there were, there were adults I couldn't count on like that. You know, nobody really wants to talk to me all the time. Cause you know, when people are going through, sometimes we don't want to hear the problems. Like they, they just don't want to know. Marvin Winans has a great song called, you just don't want to know. That's the truth. People don't, they just, you know, when it's really bad, they avoid you because they feel like that's all you're going to talk about. That's all that is in your life. But Brooklyn was like, Nah, you make bacon really good and <laughs> I'm always happy and me and Bub like McDonald's and you go. So I just wanted to tell you you're the best mom in the world and I'm just going to come lay in bed with you. She was the real reason that I didn't just flip out because there were moments that I, I really thought like, you know, this might just be easier if I'm not here. And immediately it was like, no, nah, you can't leave these kids in the, in the midst of this because if he is all they got, then no, you can't do that. So she literally saved my life. Breon couldn't talk yet. He was still a toddler. And, you know, sometimes she would drag this toddler into my room and pick my baby up off the floor and they would both get in the bed with me and just laugh and smile. And, you know, that's that's really what kept me like, I don't have to die today for years yeah wow 
So you're a child in a sense, mm-hmm. in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's fast forward. So mm-hmm. out of that situation and in Vegas, and you mentioned that you, you were a bit more robust when you arrived. Yes. robust. Yes. yes. And <laughs> so talk about what that felt like to know that you had this enormous talent and just shout out to Marvin Winans because you won his singing competition, his records. So mm-hmm. I mean, y'all just, just Google this, this wonderful <laughs> woman here because you can get a lot of results. But right. um, t- talk about the challenge and what you wish people knew about the journey of a creative, of a vocalist, of an artist in the entertainment capital of the world. Oh, absolutely. And now I do have to say, I have a very unique perspective because there are a lot of Black female artists in Vegas. And I don't want to lessen or demean anybody else's experience. We got a rough out here. Um, you know, the first thing, like I said, was the getting my image together because in Ohio, nobody cared. I mean, I'm in the Midwest and I was singing gospel music and y'all already know, like the most singingest females was built like this. So nobody really cared, you know, but then when I got out here, the West Coast is different. You know, it's, it's all about what the eye sees first. And so I had to, um, I had to make sure that I was aware of what was required and that I was willing to put in the work to actually do it. So, um, you know, I, I, I found a lot of different ways, but I really lost the weight just really watching what I was eating, tried keto for a little bit, did a couple of programs for a little bit. It all worked out. I refused to make John fried catfish when I couldn't eat it. Yeah, just making hard decisions. And um, I lost the weight. But then as a Black female, when we walk into these venues in Vegas to sing live, as soon as they see you, they turn the condenser on because they're convinced that all we do is scream and holler. So then when we get on stage with a band, we're already 50% lower than all of our non-people uh, of color cohorts. They get to sing easily and have a great sound. We're trying to scream over guitars and bass and drums and keys. And, you know, the first like year I was here, I felt like, oh, I have to conform. But then when I started singing with Gladys, she was like, no, ma'am, you tell them, leave that condenser alone. You're the talent. They in a union. You tell them what you want and you don't sing until they do it. You get your check, but they don't get a piece of vocal until they do what you need. And so that did cause some friction, but it got to the point that the sound people, when I walked in, it's like, don't play with me. Y'all already know I cussed out your friend last week. I went off on your boss two weeks ago. Do not play with me and leave that condenser alone. But, you know, it just, it makes it a little harder because my non-Black female colleagues, they just got to learn the music, look pretty, do their makeup and go out there and sing. I got to argue, defend myself. Um, you know, let them know that I know how to control a microphone. I'm in control of my voice and I can do more than just scream. This is not church. I'm a performer. That was that was rough. That was hard. And it, I did have to put myself in a place where, you know, people were like, oh, Timara's harsh. I'm not harsh. I'm just I refuse to settle when nobody else has to. If, like if this if my white friend can walk in the same song, I want to walk in the same song, too. And I don't, I don't want to be screaming because I need this tomorrow. I'm not a guitar. I can't plug it into a wall. So, you know, I, it, it gave me a reputation of Timara doesn't play. I don't mind that. My kids already knew. So, you know, the more adults that realize it, the better. But, yeah, that, that, was, that was a little rough. And then, 
Vegas likes to hold on to old Vegas. So, you know, if you find a place that says we're modern, they really mean top 40 from the 90s. Um, nobody really wants somebody to come in and just sing R&B or Neo Soul all night long. They want you to throw in Jeremiah was a bullfrog. I absolutely refuse to learn that song. But that's the things that they, that's what they want us to do because they, they think that that's what the tourists want. It's not. When they're here and they come up to me, they're like, hey, can you know something by Lizzo? Nope, but I'm going to put these headphones in and I'm going to learn it real fast and I'll go ahead and sing it. You know, it's just, it's a it's a struggle when you're trying to hold on to the culture, but get a check. But I've, I've, I've found a way. Yeah. So you reminded me too, you also did the gospel brunch mm -hmm. at the House of Blues. So you, yeah. you never, you've never strayed away from that gospel, but you've expanded into so many different diverse arenas. Absolutely. How has that been on your faith and maintaining the person that you are with the pressures of the industry to conform and all of that? How has that journey been? So up until like seven months ago, it was a constant struggle. Um, and I say up until seven months ago, because that's when my family joined the church that we're at now. Um, I have been a member of oh, one church here. Um, it was a mega church, never experienced that in the Midwest before, but I've been a member of one church here. My pastor there, um, because it was a mega church, like he loved me, he loved to have me sing, but we never had like consistent personal communication. And the thing about it is, is that I am a PK. I've been raised in the church and I am used to being at every service. But when your job takes you to go and tour with the main artist and y'all know that I'm out here singing Midnight Train to Georgia and not Amazing Grace, you know, members can be like, oh, how is that okay? She's on the praise team. I just seen her yesterday standing with Gladys. Well, first of all, thank you for watching. Secondly, like I, nobody, God didn't share with anybody else but me what my gift was for. So, but because I didn't really have a personal relationship with leadership, these members and even some upper, up, I don't want to, like not lay people, but they were in positions of leadership, had opinions, um, had things to say about what I was doing and found a way to just like make it difficult. But my pastor now, Brooklyn was playing the bass there first. And of course, Mama Bear had to go and make sure there wasn't nothing jumping off. Um, great atmosphere. And I'm like, I, I think we should be here. My husband takes years to make decisions about everything. Like, don't go to Walmart with him looking for ketchup because you're going to be in there for an hour. But he very quickly decided, yeah, I like it here. And my pastor now understands that this is the gift I have and that it may take me away sometimes, but it doesn't mean that I'm not faithful. It doesn't mean that I'm not a part of the ministry. I'm over the children's choir and that's okay. I'm on the praise team and that's okay. So if you see me going, I'm every woman, I'm still the woman that's over the church praise team and over, over the youth, you know, and I, it just, I just happened to work with Shaka. So I've been able to very much better manage that now in the last like seven months before I just had to tell people to just kick rocks because they, they don't understand. And I don't have time to explain it to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to how you started with being aware. They yeah. don't know your story. They don't know that you came from a pastor where you were in right. church all the time and you continue mm -hmm. to worship through domestic violence. They don't know that part of the story. No. 
That's really amazing. So I, I know we're running short on time, so I want to get to where you are now. But before we do, your journey, even in Las Vegas, has not been easy. So since you've been here, kind of like me, you brought your mom out, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Sister is also here. Mm-hmm. But all, all three of you have faced some really severe health challenges here in Las Vegas. And yeah. you've really been a rock and a backbone as you've worked, as you've continued to raise a family. Just talk a little bit about what that's been like for you. So um, type two diabetes runs in my family. I don't, I don't even, I can't even run back the generations, um, but it goes, my children are both type two diabetic and me and my sister and my mother and my father's parents and, uh, and my father. Uh, so it's, it is very much in the bloodline and we have had some real challenges here. Um, my mother experienced in Michigan uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. I experienced it at the exact same age, right after COVID. Um, and then my sister has been type two since she was 16, but she's probably the major um, health issue because, and it also ties into domestic violence. She was married previously and um, we didn't know she was doing a great job of hiding it, but he was abusing her um, more on a, uh, on a controlling side. So there was no, she had access to no finances or anything without him. So she was trying to get insulin as medication and he just would withhold the money or just stop her from what we, we don't know. We still don't know. But what ended up happening was this two years ago, uh, she ended up in a coma in Henderson hospital with necrotizing fasciitis, which kills 73% of the people that end up with it. And it was all on her back, kind of like this. It was like a, let me start here, diagonal line down her back from her shoulder to her hip. Um, She was in a coma. She was on a ventilator. She was on 24-hour dialysis. Um, We didn't know she had been exposed to black mold. They were saying that different parts of her body looked like she had literally been mutilated, but she wasn't, like, just real short, she had my coffee cup. And I said, I left my coffee cup at your house. I need to come get it. I didn't need it. I just knew something didn't feel right. And I was trying to sneak over there. Just have to put my cup outside to make sure I could not see her. And at that time, she was literally dying. And when we, when she ended up in the hospital, the uh, surgeon told us that she actually was in what they call a walking coma for two weeks before she ended up in the hospital. Blood pressure never went over 78, over like 60. She traveled back from Las Vegas to Toledo because her ex-husband's daughter passed away. And she was literally in that walking coma 1,800 miles away from here. And then after she got back here a week later is when she ended up in the hospital. Well, when they started telling us what the symptoms were, I said, oh, okay, well, I know this ain't got nothing to do with me, but she ain't going back to that man. She's coming with me. Um, and and he was there. And he was like, no, she can, no, you, first of all, don't speak to me because you you are this close to needing a room here yourself. So let's, let's not do that. She was in ICU for two weeks, the, re- the regular hospital for two weeks. We have 45 days and then came home to my house in a wheelchair, barely able to walk, um, had been in a bed with these open sores on her back for all that time. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, um, I want to say I'm not the nicest person. I'm just, I'm not a caretaker. I am a very much, let's handle the business. What's the problem? Let's do the solution. I'm not really like a coddler or anything like that, 
But I had to put all that aside because I had to take care of my sister. She had nowhere else to go. And she couldn't go back over there. And she couldn't go to my mother's house. And even though I had two kids and a husband and three bedrooms, it was like, well, girl, come on. So, you know, we we wrapped my house. And then, you know, everybody watching this that lives in Las Vegas knows this. Our housing market is garbage right now. It's been garbage since COVID. Um, and we... With Danielle in the house, we ended up applying for CHAPS, which was supposed to help. We actually lost the house and ended up homeless. And um, she and my kids had to go to my mom. I want to just clarify. So you're working and and singing on TV and all of Mm -hmm. that and homeless. Yeah, because when, so March 15th, 2020, when COVID started, I lost five jobs in one day. I was singing for the junior NBA. I was singing at the Mayfair Supper Club in Bellagio. I was working sometimes at the M. I was at two other hotels uh, on the strip. I had a gig at a station casino. I had my children's choir. I was doing voice lessons and I lost all of that. I had to go to all those places and pick up my stuff in one day. And so after that, like people were saying, oh, COVID is over, but it wasn't over in Las Vegas and I'm an entertainer. So people were only opening rooms 25% capacity. You can't pay an entertainer for the rate that they deserve when you only have 25% of your customers. So I wasn't working like that. So we did this and John is at the time was a teacher. And so he was teaching from home, which was affecting his income. And then we had this extra person in the house who literally could not work, eat, sleep, do nothing by herself. And so we applied for the assistance, but it just, it kind of bit us in the butt because of how the housing market was. And we lost everything. They took the money. Chaps paid $18,000 and that property management still took the house. So they end up at my mom's house. Me and John are living in a, I'm going to keep on using this, in a room that's about this big with our 160 pound Rottweiler and three cats and the two of us. And we, I mean, we were a homeless, homeless. And I was still performing. I was in this little shelter thing we were staying in when they called to tell me, congratulations, you got Celine Dion. You're going to be her background singer. And then three days later, when I got the email that said, here's your itinerary because Shaka Khan wants you to be her soprano. I was homeless. The first five, six months that I traveled with Shaka, I was homeless. I'm on tour and I'm I'm out here with her again because y'all know I love makeup. The beat the beat just stay right. I'm I'm out here looking great. I'm taking pictures with Shaka. I'm singing on major stages and leaving the airport and going back to this little casita and had nowhere to call my own with my family. And so that was for eight months. And then we ended up in a two bedroom house with me, John, Danielle, Brooklyn, Breon, T'Challa, Nemo, Sky, and Mr. Cat in this two bedroom house. Um, that lasted for eight months. We really got like done over with that. And then we finally moved to where we are now. Um, my sister has definitely improved. Her health has definitely improved, but you know, even now it's still, it's not, she's not the same. She's not the same as she was before. So, you know, some things she needs a little extra help with. Um, she doesn't move as quickly. She's singing. She's, she's performing every now and then, but it's not like it was before. So we're still kind of dealing, you know, her mouth is 100% healthy. Let me tell you that, that like that smart mouth, she's, <laughs> she's, back to, she's back to 100%. We just got to get the rest of the body to catch up. But um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a little bit of a press. And even now I ended my tour with Shaka in December of last year. 
And then we were supposed to start up again in February, but her birthday was in March and she canceled everything at the, like the front of the year and was like, you know, when I'm ready to go, I'll go and whoever's around. Okay. And then she actually has, I've seen two other singers. Nobody ever told me you don't sing for her. She's just out here touring and I'm not there. So it's like, you know, so then it was like, all right, I got to kind of make up for this and and handle this. And then I got a manager who, um, you know, took me under his wing and we, we had a whole bunch of photo shoots and I got a whole album done. And then he got his feelings hurt because I know this industry better than he does. And he ghosted me about six weeks ago and took all the music. And so that whole album, the album release, the, all that song, all those songs that I arranged and sang on, I have no access to him. So, and I heard from him in, uh, yeah, it'll be two months. That's two months today. I just realized that it was, yeah, in June. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a little bit of a thing. So now I'm starting completely over, but I feel like that was God because he was like, that is so nice girl that you did this album, but these ain't the folks I have for you. So sorry. And they just disappeared. So now I'm at where I'm at and, um, you know, I need to start over on my personal music, but my choir is being booked in Hollywood left and right. So I can't be too mad. I, you know, it's all working out for the good. Wow. I mean, that honestly reminds me a lot of the Tina Turner story. Mm -hmm. Um, I was here a few few months back or a few weeks. And with every high, high, there was an equally low, low. And so as we we wrap up here, just want to know what's next for you and and what do you want to leave with our listeners so that they walk away feeling inspired? So what's next for me is um, I'm an artist. I, I can't I can't help it. And I am different from every other female artist, um, not just in Vegas, but from everywhere. Because first of all, I ain't got no hair. Me and Doja Cat just running around bald headed <laughs> doing what we doing. Secondly, you know, I, I love performing with a band. But if I don't have a band, I will go and sit down on the piano by myself and kill it. That is my area. That's what I do. I'm going to further cultivate my choir because we went to Kathy Hilton's house last year in December. And, you know, Paris walked up and was like, y'all are amazing. I have arrived. I love Paris Hilton. Like, I, I know every every Black person don't, but I love her. And it was like, you know, we, we sang. And when we left, Kim Kardashian showed up later. God knew not to have me there for that because I'm a, I'm a little bit of a stan. I'll go ahead and admit it. Uh, but... We've, we're only doing bigger and better. I got to meet Mariska Hargitay, you know, from SVU. Dun, dun. I've been in love with her since I was like 15. So that that really, um, I just know that God has better for that. Um, I am starting over. I am doing new music. Um, you know, I just, I, I can't be discouraged. And that is kind of my segue into what I want to leave with people. So we're in Vegas and a lot of people perform. And I know that there are people who know local performers, who know mainstream performers. You know, I I know Shaka Khan personally. Like, I I literally can text her. And I want people to remember that even on Shaka's level, with the 10 Grammys and all that money and everything else, like, she's not always okay. And so when she does a concert and people are just, oh, my God, Shaka, I love you. And and people are screaming and they paid this money and everything. They take their pictures with her. But y'all don't know that she got kids just like I do. She has a regular life and things can hurt. Her son was very, very ill one time when we were out on tour. Like, like they didn't know if he was going to make it. But nobody in the audience cared. 
because all they wanted to hear was I'm every woman and ain't nobody. And so when you're in that position and you have to pour yourself out, because that's what people pay for. But you know, on the inside that a child you gave birth to is fighting for their life. That, that is a difficult position. So I would encourage anybody who watches this, sees it later, please be aware that life be life for everybody. Don't, don't assume that money or notoriety or anything, accomplishments, is more important than, you know, extending some compassion to people and giving them grace. Like, I, I pray for Shaka all the time. I ain't seen her since December, but I pray for her all the time. And it would be really cool if, like, the 15,000 followers that I have on Facebook do not let these lashes fool you. Send up a prayer for me sometimes. I still, I have a 21-year-old daughter that acts like me. That's enough. And then, I, and then I got all of life too. You know, it's just, it's, I'm still married. You know, married folks get it. You marry. Married folks have issues. And, but we put up a front. It's not to be fake, but I don't want folks all in my business. But we put up a front when we're in public, like, you know, this is my life partner. This is my companion. And y'all don't know that I really want to take that long hair he got sometimes and choke him sleep. Y'all don't know that. So instead of thinking you know things about people you, you see on social media or thinking that people act funny because they don't reach out to you or they don't respond to you, rather than be insulted, just be a little compassionate, send them some grace and send up a prayer. They probably need it. Wow. We can leave it there. Thank you so much for your transparency. Of I mean, course. I didn't know you for 20 years and I'm still learning you. So <laughs> I'm you know. a little complex. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I really appreciate, you know, being being so open and leaving us with that important message to just take care of each other, show compassion and grace because we all need it no matter what. Absolutely. You're so right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker. And as I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop and what you do matters. So live compassionately. I'll see you next time.